Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for the Generous Business Owner Podcast. I'm Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, and we have a special treat for you today. We have episode two. For those of you that tuned in last week, we had Denny McGuire with us. This is our first time doing a two-part podcast because Denny's got so much wisdom and such a great story to share that I just wanted to make it into a a two-parter. So we kind of left it with a cliffhanger last week, and and I'll kind of reset the table here. But Denny, thanks for being with us again. Uh, Thank you. And um, I can translate that all that wisdom into uh, I have made so many mistakes. (laughs) I could... Oftentimes, I don't know what to do, but I can sure tell you some things. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I well, like, that. I, like I tell our team at Arcos, I say, I've already made 80% of the mistakes a person can make. Let's try not to make those again. We'll make the next 20 together. Okay. So yeah. uh, I'm with you. And uh, I've already learned a lot from your story. But the, where we kind of left it was kind of the early part of your career, your time in the military and Vietnam, how that led you to State Farm and Anderson, Accenture. Uh, to Andrews and Kurth, kind of uh, helping run the business side of a law firm. You got with a bunch of business partners, bought 15 Remax franchises just as the time real estate was peaking in Houston and in the oil patch. You go bankrupt. We kind of took everybody through that story and, and the, the deep pain and learning and how that's helped you minister to other people. Uh, but okay, it, it, like every good cliffhanger, we kind of left them there. Now let's give them some hope, Danny. How do you get out of this hole we're in? Uh, well, so um, after the uh, bankruptcy, you know, and this I, is around 1990. Sorry, right? Yeah, uh, 1990. That's it. Okay. And I got this job as a project leader, and then Enron and EDS announced a 750 million dollar 10 year outsourcing deal, and I kind of know the technical about how to build that baseline, right? So there we are starting to make a little bit of money. And I would tell you the exciting part of this. I'll tell you the kind of a little bit of the end part, and then I'll talk about what happened. So with nothing more than the float on an American Express card, because we lost everything, you know, all I had was the float on American Express card. We grew my company, Technology Partners International, into a global firm. We had revenues of $140 million when I sold it, projected to do $170 million. 400 people around the world. And the story is a, a God-inspired miracle all the way. So kind of go back to the beginning. How did that start? Well, uh, we did this deal with Enron and saved them a lot of money by knowing how to do the baseline. Well, right down the street was Continental Airlines. And I don't know, y'all remember Frank Lorenzo and Continental oh, yeah. Airlines and Continental Airlines had gone bust once or twice. Well, they were looking at doing a deal, $2 billion, $2 billion deal. And so once again, I got involved in that. And defining those baselines is kind of a critical, it is a critical part. And so, but what was interesting is like the general counsel, you know, came to me and said, Denny, he said, I get asked, what do you do? We don't know what you do. He said, Renzo asked, he says, we got McKinsey, we got Arthur Anderson, we got cafeteria consultants. Who's McGuire Consulting? And that's who we were at that point in time. Right. And then, there was a partner with Price Waterhouse. He says, Denny, he says, you got this little niche. Why don't you come work for us? Hmm. And uh, no, I don't want to do that. 
And he said, hey, you got a couple of 1099 employees working with you, but let me be honest. You're not even a pimple on our butt. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this? What company yeah, is this? Well, it's Price Waterhouse. I okay, okay. The, okay. I yeah, I, I, oh, I didn't know you weren't trying to disclose it. Too too late. Sorry. No, no. no. Well, uh, most of the names are fine. And That's uh, all right. That's years ago. But, but that, but I reminded him of it a couple of years ago. Well, you kind of were. Okay. Can yeah, we just give yeah, him credit? Was, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was still a people, an accurate statement. And then, you know, the people, you know, like the general colleague, his name was Bill Diffenderfer. And he says, he says, Denny, he says, I was asked what you do. And I told him if I knew what you did, I wouldn't need you. But, you know, is this going to be a real job? Is it going to last? What yeah, am I yeah. going to do? And so I'm thinking about this. And then so every morning what I would do, we lived out around 1960. And every morning I'd go to McDonald's and I'd order a large black coffee to go. And every morning they would say, what size do you want? Large. Do you want a cream and sugar in that? No. Black. Is it for here to go? Every morning. But also every morning I would listen to these books on tape. And one of the books I was listening to was the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And so this one segment was talking about market segmentation and first mover advantage. And so, you know, the idea that you can have a broad category, but then what you do is you zero in on a specific niche and you define yourself around it and you're the, the first first mover. And so there I tell people, you know, maybe only in America, can you get in a car with a cup of McDonald's coffee and be the founder and CEO a consulting company that isn't even a pimple on somebody else's butt. And 45 minutes later, when you get out of the car, you're the founder and CEO of the world's largest outsourcing advisory firm. Right. And that was the key to our growth. We segmented ourselves. This is what we do. We don't do all this other stuff that McKinsey and them do. So we give you an honest answer on this one thing. And that differentiated us. And it was the key to our growth. Just being so anyway, honest about the narrow niche, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get to the part where EDS sues us. Yeah. Well, we're kind of there now. With the Continental deal, there, my counterpart with EDS was a guy named Warren Gallant. And so we were kind of on the other side of the table, but we kind of liked each other. And uh, he really, and we just decided, why don't we do this business together? Yeah. Join forces. Yeah. He knew the vendor side. I knew the customer side. Right. We, we were perfect. We were perfect. Was that from the Enron relationship? Is that where you met? Enron and Continental. He was on and the Continental. Continental he did both. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. were on the, you know, you were representing the company and he was representing EDS. And then you guys were like, hey, why don't we team up and yeah. do the consulting together? Okay. So we decided to do that. And we told EDS, Warren's going to join me. And, you know, we had the name of our company, Technology Partners International. And we, weren't work, we won't work on any of the deals that Warren's worked on. Right. Well, they sued us. They sued us. <laughs> they sued us for torture, interference, contract, theft of trade secrets. EDS and, uh, sued you. EDS. EDS sued me. Yeah. Warren's old employer. I'm just, yeah, just kidding. Yeah. That. Okay. Mm -hmm. So one Wednesday night, I come back to my office at, at Enron, and I get this message from Baker Bot's attorney telling me that 10 o'clock in the morning, they're filing a permanent injunction against us. And we'd be getting the documents tonight and that uh, we're going to appear before Judge so-and-so the next morning at 10. Right. And this is like at 530. Right. And so he left the message on the, as a voicemail. And I went over to Alberto and I said, Alberto, listen to this. And Alberto, Bay of Pig survivor, did not like that. He did not like that. He called the uh, 
general consul of Enron, who called Vincent Elkins, uh-huh. Clark Martin. I think it was Clark Martin. And uh, to get help. And the idea was, hey, when you get this document, call us. And I don't know which is scarier, being sued by EDS or getting a bill from Vincent Elkins, at <laughs> like a zillion dollars. And so the next, we got the papers late at night, and I was afraid to call Vincent Elkins. Right. I mean, you know. And so that morning I call him, and Clark said, Denny, where were you? We All put right. together a war room and everything for you. And I said, oh, my. I said, I couldn't call you. I don't And he says, hey, we've got a, we've got a, we've got a, a partner here. Who because, knows- and look, just to clarify, the reason you didn't want to call him was partially because you didn't have the money to pay him, right? Oh, no. We had like 300 bucks in the bank. Right. And- yeah. So it was really yeah. just a money thing, right? Yeah, money. And uh, I mean, we're just a little bitty thing. Yeah, 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 world. yeah. You're bringing in the, the tanks yeah. for, you just yeah. felt like a gnat. Okay. Yeah, under the covers, we're still that pimple. <laughs> right, 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 right. And uh, so anyway, the next day, uh, we get there and the uh, uh, Vincent Elkins attorney gets there. And uh, and Warren and Sue, his wife Sue, get there, and then there's Vinny. Vinny, Vinny. This story could be a movie, but uh, Vinny is a cousin, and they put him through law school. Vinny is just like Vinny in the movie. I was just about to say, it sounds like the movie. Oh yeah, he's about five six. He's like a water bug running around. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then I got my real staid Vincent Elkins attorney there, and so so we read the document, and the document says you cannot work for EDS or any current or potential client of EDS or any of EDS's sister companies like General Motors or Hughes Tool or whatnot, or Hughes Aircraft. And they want me to sign that. And I said, I can't sign that. So anyway, they go in to talk to the judge and they're in there for a while. And uh, all of a sudden, Vinny, Vinny comes running out and says, we kick their ass. And then he runs back <laughs> in. <laughs> and I'm thinking, did he really kick their ass? I don't know, but Vinny. And so they come out and it turns out it was going real bad for us. And then the judge says, what are the trade secrets? And nobody knew what the trade secrets were. And in fact, there were no trade secrets. Right. So anyway, the judge postpones it for two weeks and then can be retried. Well, in that two weeks, it would cost us, you know, like 75000 Yeah, exactly. We didn't do that. So anyway, there were no trade secrets. There was a key guy in EDS who knew Ross Perot, knew the situation. If we called him to testify, he was going to say there are no trade secrets. So we kind of had something there. So then I talked to the Continental and, yeah, the Continental and really System One and uh, Enron folks. And uh, they said, Denny, this is just horrible. And the, the general counsel at System One said, I'm embarrassed by this, but as oftentimes happen in these big outsourcing deals, you do this projection and you project the savings and then you'd net present value of the savings and you'd get a check. Wow. But he says, Denny, he says, we can't do anything. He says that part of this, tra- when we sign this contract, we get a check for $250 million. And they did sign it and they did get the check and they sent the check to Continental's holding company and then Continental went oh, bankrupt. They kept the contract with EDS, but that money saved Continental Airlines back then. So anyway, they couldn't do that. And then Enron, they didn't want to get involved in something like this. And so what we agreed is that I could send them depositions, but they would never respond. Hmm. And then Jack Tompkins, this is where Jack comes in. Jack says, Denny, he says, 
why don't you just settle this? He says, they tell us that this isn't about you. It's just about Warren. Right. And so I went and got the actual pleadings or whatever, highlighted in yellow, all the things that were about me. And Jack saw that. And then about three days later, I get this call from another Baker Botts attorney and said, I'm so-and-so and I'm representing EDS and we really want to settle this. And I said, I've heard that before, but you don't say, you know, he says, we really want to settle. The person who did this really should not have, how can we settle? And so we settled it. We had our own knowledge. And then Warren would, could work on any contract that after 18 months, he could work on any contract. You know, Yeah. we had promised he'd never work on it. So with this time and this model, the, our model, we used the same model because we didn't have any money, where senior people could come work for us. They would pay their own out of pockets. But when we got pay, when when we got paid, they got paid, you know, like 65% of uh, whatever they build. The good people love that deal. And so we were able to grow and hire great people. And so we did huge deals with DuPont and JP Morgan and other airlines and you know ATT, Bell South. And so we're growing pretty good. And I start to hear that people tell us, hey. General Motors is going to hire you to help them with EDS. And so we're like, we got like 30 people, General Motors. And so we're waiting. And then we did get the call from General Motors. And they said, well, we want to meet in our lawyer's offices. We can't meet in our offices because EDS runs all the telephone systems and we don't know what's bugged. <laughs> so we meet at the offices, we talk, and they want to hire us. And then EDS says, it's not really fair because Warren worked on the pricing for the GM contract. And the contract that Jack Smith signed was eight words. EDS will provide all of General Motors data processing services. That was the contract. That yeah, was yeah. the contract. And so you could imagine, and it was $4 billion a year Holy uh, as it worked out. And they just debited the account. So anyway, EDS said that. And General Motors says, you know, that sounds right. That wouldn't be fair. Then we pulled out the letter that says we that Warren was free to work on any yep. contract after 18 months. So that was get out of jail free. And so over the years, we have billed General Motors more than $200 million. And it never would have happened if we had not been sued. <laughs> so this so, goes back to that theme, right, that we talked about at the beginning of Last podcast, or at least you and I have talked about it before. Maybe we haven't hit Romans 8.28 yet, mm -hmm. that all things work for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purposes. But I mean, this is such a theme in your story, right? Like, okay, just to recap that story, what I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, okay, you hire Warren from EDS, and you kind of have this deal like, hey, we don't want to mess yeah. with the giant EDS. We'll never touch an EDS right. client. We're, we're just going to go play fish in the sea. We'll just go do our own thing. Or any clients he's worked on. Right. Yeah. And uh, so you're kind of hands off on a bunch of stuff. And then the lawsuit comes. You don't have any money. God provides this amazing kind of defense and sort of works this out in your favor pretty quickly, it sounded like, mm -hmm. right? Without racking up giant yeah. bills. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then the solution is a, an 18-month stay where you end up getting more business than you ever would have from yeah. a That's really an incredible... God story. It really is. And then it got some publicity that EDS had sued Technology Partners, the largest outsourcing firm in the world. And we had like, you know, eight people. But yeah. to, to, to your point, the papers, right, the reporting yeah. was 
TPI, the largest, like that was great advertising for you. Oh, right? well, and I thought that, you know, being sued, we would never, no one would ever want to hire us. We got a call from Riggs Bank. That was the first one. And they said, if EDS sued you, you guys got to be good. And that really helped <laughs> accelerate, accelerate what we did. So, um, so we started growing rapidly. And what happened is we worked for these huge clients and the clients, they wanted consistent processes throughout the world. And right. so it was General Motors and JP Morgan and those clients who helped us grow internationally. And so we we've done deals any place the sensible people would want to do deals. So anyway, there's another part of this that I want to tell a part of the growing. Yeah. And that is super busy. Yeah. It sounds insane. I can't even magically figure it out. But I got two million miles on Continental and a million miles on Delta. Yeah, it's a lot. So I, so I traveled a lot and we had a great culture with our people and we had a life coach, life coach working with us and our family. And I think I'm doing great. And Marty tells me whenever I, you know, the girls are missing me and, you know, Heather, our oldest, I would always call on Wednesday nights. That was our time. And then Sundays I'd take Stephanie and, you know, we'd go to McDonald's and split a biscuit. That was kind of our deal. Right. And then we'd talk along the way. And, so, but I'm trying to balance these things. My to-do yeah. list is always giant. It's crazy. So anyway, we're about at, um, I don't know, 45, 50 million. And I hired a guy, Ed Glotzbach, who was an incredible mentor. And he was literally the CFO of uh, Southwestern Bell and then the head of technology. Wow. I mean, he had like a couple billion dollar budget and he retired and he just, he liked our values. He liked right. our values. So anyway, we're growing and, and we're, you know, education's a big deal. And we have the situation where, we're bringing all of our people globally, all the partners and senior people to Newark Airport. And we're going to have a couple of days of training and then they fly back. Huge deal. Amazingly expensive, if you right. can imagine doing that and globally and then all the lost billable time. At the same time, my mother is sick and she's been sick a lot and she's got some cancer. And, you know, we've had some false alarms, nip and tuck. And so how we got this conference at the same time my mother is sick. And so uh, anyway, I kind of look at schedules and things like that. And I call Ed. Ed's now either our CFO or president. And I said, hey, hey, Ed, I've got this thing figured out. I said, uh, how I can do our conference and also take care of my mother. I can, you know, take these schedules. And Ed says, well, that tells me two things. And uh -oh. I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, first of all, your values are fake. Ooh. Oh. There's nothing that I cared more about than my values. And I right. said, what do you mean? And he said, you tell us God's first, family second, and the uh, business, uh, business is, third. is third. First time you have a real test, you go with the business. Ooh. Your values are fake. Your Ouch. Values are fake. Yeah, it's like, boom. And then I said, what's the other thing? And he said, well, you <laughs> obviously don't have any confidence in your leadership team. Uh, that was almost as big as your values are fake. We had wow. a great leadership team, great leadership team. And I said, you know, that's not right either. So the answer is clear what I have to do. And so I just leave everything, go home to be with my mother. And so she's in the hospital and I get there early in the mornings and we spend like an hour, hour and a half for like three days in a row. And, and it was, you know, we grew up in a difficult life. She felt, you know, that I didn't really appreciate her as a mom. There's just a lot of stuff there. But I got to, we had more quality time those three days than we had in our whole life. Wow. And so then 
whenever I'd go home, I knew what all my brothers and sisters liked to do, and they'd do it. Some liked to go to Red Lobster, some want me to go to church with them, and so right. we'd kind of do it. And they said, well, you're different. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, every time you come home, you got to schedule. And he says, we appreciate it, but we can tell we're scheduled. And it's like, we do something, and then you sneak away for, for a call. And uh, oh my gosh, he said, this time, you're more relaxed. We just get to talk. You know, mm -hmm. there's no, we don't feel like we're an item on your to-do list. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was transformative. And uh, I said, oh my gosh. So I realized I was working super hard with my to-do list, but it was checklist items rather than relationships. Boom. We got to highlight that, man. Repeat yeah. that. Repeat that. For it's a difference between a checklist and a relationship. And this is like one of the most powerful, powerful things that I learned. Now, I'm going to do another podcast maybe on the value of having a cup of coffee with someone. Yeah. Cup of coffee where you're 100% focused, you're really listening, and you really care about that person. And so with the family, I go back and talk to the family, and, uh, and they say, Dad, whenever we go to lunch, you got an agenda. Yeah. And then you talk to us in PowerPoint. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, we watch your face. You kind of bide your time. You listen. <laughs> <laughs> then when you could sneak in your three PowerPoint points. <laughs> oh, man. And then you can relax. It's the and checklist I, again. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, I said, and so I'm super busy. And I'm like, I said, just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to do. And I'll put it at the top of my list. There's that list again. <laughs> <laughs> listen. I still need a checklist, but I'll put the your yeah. items on it. I'm thinking that's a real compliment. Right. It as a compliment. And then Jeffrey, son-in-law, he says, just come over to our house and sit on the couch and watch TV with us. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's easy. <laughs> All right. Another part of that was Stephanie is my, uh, she worked at the company, just incredibly good. Felt a lot of pressures being the boss's daughter. but I'm Sure. But they were trying to have a child, and they couldn't have a child, and just struggle, struggle, struggle. They're trying not to do all kinds of things, and then one day she comes in and she to my office, and she closes the door, and she's kind of crying, and she says, "Dad, I need to quit." Jeffrey and I just really want to focus on having the children, to having a child, and I just can't do both. Mm. So my normal thing to do would be to say. Oh, I hear you. Let me finish a couple things up and then we can go to lunch and talk about this. Yeah. Instead, I just got up from my desk and I just hugged her. Yeah. Didn't say a word. And she tells the story over and over again how in that there was acceptance, love, encouragement without saying a word. And uh, so there are more examples of this, but what I've really learned is the power of relationship versus checklist and wow uh, that, yeah and that holds over to so anyway we continued to grow the company we said it sell it in 2007 and we had liberally distributed stock options and things like that so we got a much higher valuation because we had people tied to the company with the stock options but still right. we made a lot of millionaires and things like that when we sold the company so after that, I signed a, had to sign a, a seven-year non-compete because they knew our culture was so strong, I could start the business back up again. Right. And But anyway, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take appropriate 
commercial best practices and you know use them in nonprofits mm. because the nonprofits I'd seen were they could grow to a certain then became you know inefficient sometimes the founder was became self-destructive just in terms of feeling like the pressures that I had to, you know I felt like I had to do everything and right. you know no that wasn't you know if I could do everything then you don't need us is what Ed told me so that's what I did. And an encouragement thing that I would give to people who want to give, I would say, don't just give your money. Don't just give your money. Give your, your time and your wisdom to these leaders. Because if it's hard to be, you know, CEO of a, you know, of a private company or something, I assure you, much harder to be the CEO and leader of a, a nonprofit. You know, the leaders of Star of Hope, we were very active in Star of Hope on the board for like 12 years and whatnot. And for those they, who don't know that aren't in Houston, that's a homeless ministry yeah. here in Houston. Yeah. yeah. And they would say, it's really hard for us, to, if you're the head of a homeless ministry, can you really go out to eat in a reasonably nice place? <laughs> that's, People oh, I never thought of that. Oh, yeah, the pressure that they're under. And so we became really close friends to Randy and Kathy uh, Tabor. And uh, with that, with Living Water, with... All the things that we've gotten heavily involved in, we give not only our money, but really our time and concern for them. And that's just so powerful, I think. And the encouragement I would give to others is the leaders need uh, you know, your emotional and personal support, at least as much as your money. And we've seen that over and over again. But you have, this is what I find so interesting. One of the many things is, as any listener here is, is going to glean. I mean, obviously there's a ton of pearls you've given us. This checklist versus relationship idea, I think is so powerful. And so I know you have this sort of heart for encouragement and discipleship and mentorship and all of those things, sort of these kind words and encouragement. I mean, maybe you give some, I mean, you had a heck of a business career. I mean, you got, you got a lot of business principles to teach. But it's so cool to see how aware you are of just the ministry of encouragement to come alongside business people who need it, but also ministry leaders, nonprofit leaders and that sort of thing. But you did kind of bring this strategic knowledge as well, this business acumen. I see sometimes maybe people bring one or the other. I think it's kind of unique that you've been able to bring both. And I know one big project that you've been involved in, I mean, you can tell any stories you like, but is this story of Malawi. I know you've done a lot of things in Malawi. Maybe I think just that story can kind of illustrate the depth of thinking that you bring strategically. You want, can you mind sharing that? Yeah. So once again, all the key things we've gotten involved in, I was against. Marty is the one. <laughs> so Marty, my wife, she's the one that we're, as we were digging out of things, she says, we have some extra money. We need to give, you know, more than just our church. And so we looked around and we found Star of Hope. and. Um, so we gave $5,000 to Star of Hope. And uh, they want us to come visit. And I said, no, I don't want to come visit. That's kind of how I grew up. You know, I grew up, you know, half a step out of a homeless shelter. Yeah. And so we gave the money. And then a month or two later, they called back and said, we didn't use all the money. So we need to write you a check. No, <laughs> they know. did. Yes, they did. They did. Wow. And then it's like, but they want us to come down and see the facility. And so, yeah. uh, okay. So we went down there and Star of Hope, if any of you have been there, it's, it's not only a homeless shelter, but it's transitional living. And so they get people off drugs and they, 
you know, there's a reason people are homeless oftentimes and you, you, they deal with those kind of problems. So we go down there and it was so different from anything I had expected. And uh, you go there and, you know, there weren't any people that were kind of sitting in a, you know, head down. People were happy and they were moving yeah. quickly and they were doing things. And so instead of spending like 45 minutes, we spent like three hours. I went through wow. everything. I went through, cap, you know, the kitchen. The, just, I just, I could feel the spirit of God there. Yeah. I could feel the spirit of God. So anyway, when we're done, I said, this place is so different. It's so different than what I expected. And they said, the people here have hope. This is the star of hope. <laughs> and uh, oh. so that, so with that, you know, we were on the board and very active with them for like 12 years. And, uh, but what they did is they focused on the whole person. You, yeah. know, you, you need physical, you need medical, you need spiritual. And so their success rates were just incredible. So anyway, we were active in drilling water wells in, in Kenya, which is incredible. We were doing water wells at hospitals that didn't have any water. Can you imagine that? Hospitals wow. that would take care of several hundred people a day that you had to bring your own water. Oh, my god! So we would do water wells there. And then they went through some political turmoil and things like that. So we stopped. And then, uh, once again, definitely didn't want to do it. but. A friend said, I need you to meet these people from Malawi. And so I agreed to go to breakfast with them. They were here in, in Houston. And we were talking to, to Jeff and Kareen Rogers. And this is 2007, 2008, right in then. And we're talking about this. And I began talking about the water and how the water we were doing with living water was keeping people alive, but their lives weren't being transformed. Yeah. And so, and that's when Jeff said, Yes. He says, That's right. He says, you need food, water, and healthcare to stay alive, but you need a marketable skill and a relationship with Christ to have a transformed life. And it was like a giant light bulb went off. And it was like, that's it. And so found ourselves going to Malawi, Africa, and we go to their site. And their site is in the middle of 35,000 desperately poor people. Now they have 500, 500 plus acres. But all he had was 40-foot container, he had uh, one uh, solar power screen. They were living in tents, and they were handing the foundation for an outpatient clinic. There was nothing there, but it's like the spirit of God just woof. And 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 what it was was this mission of. There's been billions given to Africa, but yeah. most of it's been given just to keep people barely alive. Yeah, it hasn't been given to really help them with a transformed life. So that concept was huge. Yeah, and so we've been very active there. And today they have over 500 acres. They have all kinds of fish, poultry, vegetables, things like that. They have an outpatient clinic that used to do. You know, they had gone through the pandemic, so they have to cut back some three to five thousand patient visits a month. They've delivered over 3,000 babies, and it's all renewable energy. It's the only place in Africa that we know of that's all solar and wind powered. Crazy. And we have Baylor helped us design the uh, the operating rooms there. And, and so now we're growing macadamia nuts and bamboo to help make it economically self-sustaining. So the pandemic has kicked our butts because it really hurt in terms of fundraising and things like that. Our people stayed at the facility. A lot of the people sent their people home and whatnot, but our people stayed there through the whole thing. And we're digging out and doing doing well. 
So the idea is a model. It's a model. So let me put a little period there. When I sold the company for six months, I was so tired. I just felt really good. Yeah. And then I felt, do I have any value? And we're right. going to church and we're contributing to things and things like that. But it's not like my global company. You know, it was my little ego thing was I would see how many countries I could talk to before eight in the morning, either yeah. talk or email or something like that. And without that, it was this is probably extreme, but I didn't feel like if I don't wake up in the morning, I don't care. You know, yeah. I certainly wasn't going to hurt myself or anything like that. But it was like, well, you're kind of depressed. Thing. You're still kind of really? depressed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, do I still have value? Right. And the value I would compare it to is, you know, something big. I mean, TPI was big. Right. And um, so this thing was CLI. That was the thing that really turned me around because that was a big vision. That was a big vision. And CLI only, is Child Legacy International for those. Yes. Uh, yes excuse yes. me. Yeah. And so not only have we built that facility and not only can it be a model for others, but we've also repaired 4,000 hand pump water wells throughout the country, touching 6 million people. You know, how about that for big? Exactly. Um, I mean, you're, you're a guy who enjoys building things and scaling, and it's kind of a classic yeah. entrepreneur deal. Yeah. But, you know, we run into, we've talked, you know, I've talked about this before about how this, I want to highlight this because I think this is such a common struggle. You know, we deal with people at Arcos, a lot of them are selling their companies who want to be generous. I mean, it's kind yeah. of your prototype that you've been through. But, you know, I think what almost always surprises them is just because I always say just because, you know, a transition is coming doesn't mean you're prepared for it. You know, yeah. I mean, you knew yeah. you're going to sell the thing and you mm -hmm. had all these other things going and you kind of had a general concept of what you wanted to do. But mm -hmm. I really appreciate your sharing that sort of little depression that you had there. Oh, because yeah. It's a transition. Like it didn't happen instantly. You had to do, as halftime would say, some low cost probes, maybe to figure out mm -hmm. some things. And then, oh, now I have the project I can sink my teeth into. But how long was it between when you sold the company and when you really found CLI, for example? Well, six months was really hard, but it was probably more like 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's uncommon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I tell people now. So for me, one of my heroes is Marty's mother. She was a pastor's wife, and she was active until 85 years old. And so I'm active ministry and take people. So one of my deals is I want to run the race to completion. So now I'm 76 years old. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, okay, now at this age, you know, I'm kind of out of date. You know, I can tell a good story, but I'm kind of, I, you know, I certainly don't have the connections I used to have. You know, what is my value now? You know, and, you know, JP Morgan is not going to call me for help, you know? And in fact, you know, I don't know if the lemonade stand down the street is going to call me. So what is my value going forward? How do I finish strong? And so what I have concluded is investing my life, people that God brings to me is my calling now. And so first it's, you know, my relationship with God and my relationship with, you know, my wife and our family. That's number one. But after that, I find that uh, God brings people to me. And sometimes they stay and sometimes they go. But what I do is kind of the same concept I had with TPI. 
objectivity. So I find that when I invest in a company, usually I lose all my money. But if you invest, it's not like you're impartial anymore. And if you charge them, I don't really like that either, because what I found in my life is I never knew when I needed a mentor. You know, I needed someone that I could just call at the appropriate time. Like the idea that I would have a mentor to do what Ed did and say, Denny, <laughs> that tells me two things. You're a fake and uh, you don't trust your leadership teams. And so I have this thing now I call my muffin ministry, which is if you buy the meal, you buy the coffee and the, and the muffin, I will spend time with you and I use certain methodologies and things like that. And what I find is people self-select. And uh, I have a couple of people who are very senior executives, other, other people kind of in the middle. And then I have some people who are just startups, you know, one guy is... He's got a roofing company. It's $5 million and he wants to grow it to 10 so he can give away a million dollars a year. One has, he cleans pools and he's got some interesting thing there. He cleans 60 pools and he wants to clean 150, you know? So I have found great reward in being that objective person to share what I can. And the idea is that, you know, let God bring them to me and then we'll just see if something happens. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But I think that is, that's how I feel, I can feel valuable these next years, you know? Well, uh, listen, one, one of my uh, favorite quotes is from Truett Cathy, you know, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And he said, uh, he said, you know, he asked a question. He said, you know, when, you know how you can tell when somebody needs encouragement? And uh, the guy goes, no, uh, Truett, how? He goes, they're breathing. Okay. <laughs> and I love that line because, uh, you know, we, I, we have a lot of leaders listening to this. You know, they're mm -hmm. walking on the treadmill and, you know, it's kind of lonely at the top when you're trying to run a company and, mm -hmm. you know, you feel like employees want something from you. Maybe uh, the, I mean, heck, even your pastor, you probably, you feel like wants something from you, the nonprofit. Everybody kind of wants something from you, you know. Yeah. You make a you make a few bucks, maybe you live in a gated community and you, you know, whatever. It just can be isolating. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things we're trying to do here is break down some of those walls and and uh yeah. enforce some communication. So, first of all, I want to encourage you that it's so obvious to me and everybody listening to this that you have this sort of gift of encouragement and mentorship and obviously all these business skills as well, but it's just so cool to listen to your transparent story about how God has orchestrated all these unique experiences to bring you to a place where you can minister to others using those skills. So thank you for, for that ministry. And, and I went the, obviously a lot of people are encouraged by this story. And as you know, and we did this in episode one, obviously you've got a lot to share. We did two episodes here, but we always try to wrap up, as you know, with a practical tip of some way some business owner who wants to be a little more generous in what they're doing, no matter where they are along the way, maybe you can picture one of these people that you're mentoring and the questions they ask. But if they're like, man, this is all great and all these stories and stuff, but if there's one thing I can do tomorrow to be better, what's one practical takeaway maybe from all this discussion we've had today or even something new that pops into your brain that you might share? Yeah, I, I would go back to what Barbara Litchfield talked about, you know, if and what she was saying is if you want to change, you know, she said it's always easy to ask for money than it is to change. And for some people, it's easier to fail than to change. 
And as I talk to my peers and younger and a little older, they are miserable. They, many of them are miserable. And uh, so I try to encourage them, but they don't want to change. They don't want to change. And so that idea of if you want a life that's rewarding and exciting, you got to be willing to change. And uh, one of the kind of thoughts that uh, I really think about often is this idea, I can't remember who said it, but it was nothing is sadder than a Christian who's living in a way that doesn't need God. And what happens when you have a bunch of money is you don't need God. And so how do you really, and there are, not that I'm, I think great things are happening to people in their lives, but because they're not tuned into God, they don't see them. They see them as coincidences or opportunities or a friend did this. And really when you start thinking about those is these are things that God's caused or allowed to happen in my life. It kind of opens up, you know, opens up uh, your view of what can happen. And I would just encourage that. If you're miserable where you're at, you got to do something different. And uh, you can give money, but also build relationships too. The way I would translate that, the way I hear that and receive that is, you know, and we deal with people for a living who have more than they need, sort of by definition. If you've got something to invest for the future, you've got more than you need today. And so, you know, we deal with a lot of people like that. And, and I think that the way I translate what you said is, even if you're comfortable monetarily, you've had this great career, whatever it is, maybe you feel marginalized because you sold the company, you're getting older, whatever, whatever the situation is. I like this encouragement of live in such a way that you still need God. In other words, you're still, as my friend Mark Middleberg would say, you're on an adventure. And he, you know, he wrote a book with Lee Strobel, Adventures. I think it's Adventures with God. You know, And so you just think of your life as an adventure with God. Don't get too comfortable. Actually yeah. make changes in your life, try new experiences, pour into others. You know, it's okay to fail at some stuff, but keep engaging in trying and engaging God and continue the adventure. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And look for God. If you look for God, you'll find him. You know? Well, listen, that's a great place to end it. Danny, can't thank you enough for spending this time for two podcasts with us. I just... All the stories you've got from all the way back to uh, even Vietnam War and before have been just yeah. awesome. So if you listen to episode two and hadn't heard one, go back and listen to that. There's some amazing stories in that one as well. But I just want to thank you for, uh, for joining us on the Generous Business Owner Podcast. Thanks, Danny. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And please tune in next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.